Thanks, Stephen. Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn it to uh, the book of Mark. I'm convinced that this is, uh, this is actually a message from our folks who do the live stream uh, to not move as much. That's what I'm guessing this is. Like, <laughs> don't just stop moving. Okay. I'll get you. That's, I'll get you. Hey, a couple things before we get started. First and foremost, if you've been visiting with UPC for any amount of time or for, I don't know, for like the last, I don't know, four weeks, four or six weeks, something like that, um, I would love for you to fill out this little tear-off thing in here and put it, give it, so, so, we, we already passed the baskets, I don't know, put it somewhere. We'll find it. Uh, but the reason being is because to me, everyone is new because I'm new. So everybody, it's like, I recognize some of you now, so that's good. But for the most part, it's like I see new people all the time. But if you're, like, I'd love to just kind of say hey and, uh, and answer any questions you might have about the church. So um, the only way I can do that is if I know who you are. So I'd love to get that information. I promise I'm not just going to, like, pop over to your house. It's creepy and weird, okay? Um, I might give you a call or an email or something like that. Secondly, see a lot of y'all dressed up and fancy me. I'm, I'm trying to incarnate into my new Floridian brothers and sisters who think that it's cold outside, all right? Um, for the record, it is not springtime. That's what this is in Virginia. This is springtime. Windows were open last night. It was lovely, all right? Um, however, here's the danger. We are doing a lessons and carol service. And that means that for a lot of us, this is the last service that we're going to go to before Christmas, or in fact, before New Year's. Maybe we'll come on Christmas Eve, but let me just encourage you with something. The first time I remember Christmas Day occurring on a Sunday when I was in ministry, I, I remember being like, how is this going to work? Like, this is crazy. I've got four young kids. I think I had three at the time. Three young kids. How is this going to work? Can I tell you there was nothing better than starting our Sunday with worship just to remind us what Christmas is about? And I know a lot of us got young kids and we're like, oh, Rick, but they've been waiting all this time. And then the night, I know. You can disciple them in this way. I know it's hard. Listen, I get it. Um, they're excited. But here's an opportunity for you to help them see uh, that those gifts are secondary to the gift that came. And listen, I'm not just saying this because I'm the pastor and like that means that, means that I have some self-interest in this, you know? Like, I don't want to preach to like five people. Like, that's not what I'm doing. Um, it's really because I, I, I care about you and this is, this is actually a thing that, that I think can be, can be really meaningful, okay? Now, Let's get into this. So over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how the incarnation, or that, that is Jesus' birth, is, wasn't just because he didn't have anything to do um, on December 25th or thereabouts. It's because he was on a mission, right? The Christmas spirit is really about a mission. It's not just about um, being nice. And so this week, we look at the idea of Jesus who was loved for our sake, becoming forsaken. And we do that from the book of Mark. So if I know you've had a lot of up and down today. Let's stand one more time. 
Well, that's not true. There'll be one more after this, but... Mark 1, 9 to 11, and then I'm going to jump over to 15, 33 to 34 if you've if you got your Bibles out. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Then chapter 15, 33 to 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is God's word given so that you and I could flourish. Would you pray with me? Jesus, speak to our hearts. In the midst of a season that is all that we have made all about us, help us right now to make this about you. And in that gratefulness and thankfulness, then uh, love others. But everything in us wants to turn this about us, and so we need your intervention. Holy Spirit, work. Open our eyes to see Jesus and our ears to hear from him and our hearts to receive him. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So, like I said, we've been spending the last few weeks um, looking, using, using that hymn that we just sang, Thou, um, Thou is Rich Beyond All Splendor, to kind of talk about the things that um, Jesus, before he took on human, his humanity, his human nature, that Jesus kind of left, or at least um, set aside for our sake. And so, you know, if you haven't had a chance to listen to all those, they're on our website. You can go do that. But the first week, we looked at how Jesus went from a position of omnipotent power down to a position of vulnerable weakness. Maybe some of you remember that. Then, then we looked at uh, how he went from a position of complete fullness to abject poverty, all for our sake. And this, this week, though, we focus on a more relational issue, the issue of love. To talk about love is dangerous because love for many of us, is something that's very difficult. Not necessarily to give it, but probably to receive it. And we have stories of why that is. I certainly have one of why that is. But the thing is, is that one of the other reasons why talking about love is so dangerous is that everyone loves. So this is not something that's like here for a couple of us. This is for all of us. No matter where we're at in faith, no matter where we're at in life, no matter what we think of Jesus. And so today what we're talking about is how the mission of the incarnation took Jesus from love to forsakenness. And so let's, um, let's, let's get into this. As always, there's an outline if you, if you like to take notes. If not, don't worry about it. Um, before, I, before I do, though, I just want to say one thing. We are about to step into very deep waters. There are very few places in Scripture uh, in which we are let into... The, the life of the, uh, the, the inter, what's called the inter-Trinitarian life of God. And that sounds like really snooty-falooty. Really what it means is, is that if you remember, Christians believe, the Bible teaches Christians believe, that God exists as one God in three persons, right? One what, three who's. Um, if, you're, if you're more interested in that, 
You can talk to Keith Johnson, who did his PhD in it. You're like, go, go talk to him. He'd love to talk to you about Trinitarian theology, um, I'm, I'm sure. But, uh, I mean, you can talk to me or Steve, too, but he knows more. Let's be honest, okay? Um, and this is utterly unique in, the, in the, the, the world religions, right? Because what we believe is that because God is three persons, before anything else was created, God related. We can say God is love because God was love long before there was creation. It means that God is both omnipotent, ultimate, and personal. And that's so weird. Because like, um, if you were to take, say, Islam, right? Allah is ultimate, but not very personal. And if you were to take like, um, you know, deism or, or pagan deities, God is personal, but he's not ultimate. But in Christianity, God is both ultimate and personal because of this thing we call the Trinity. And it's utterly re- unique. And it is very rare in Scripture for us to be privy to the interaction between these persons, right? But our text this morning deals with those interaction, er, er, interactions, right? Jesus' baptism and his death are the, are the biggies. But you also have, like, there's a couple other stories in, in Mark chapter 9. There's the story of what we call the transfiguration. There you have similar things, some interaction going on. And then John 15 to 17, you have some of Jesus' prayers and how that kind of the interaction, the interplay between the persons is going on. But the point that I want to make is that we want to tread lightly here because it's somewhat of a mystery. By somewhat, I mean a lot. But also, it's something that gives us a great vantage point into who God is. Okay? So let's look first at Jesus' position of love and delight. If you're back in Mark, you can flip over to chapter 1. So let me paint the picture for you. There's this guy named John. He happens to be Jesus' cousin. He is um, baptizing people in the Jordan River. If you... um, If you've ever bought a children's Bible and seen the pictures of this, um, you are convinced that we do baptism wrong around here. That's all I'm going to say, but it's like that's the picture you get. Um, It just so happens that a lot of those children's Bibles are published by people who don't agree with us about baptism, but I digress. Um, But he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. We don't have a ton of time to go into why and all that means, but in the midst of this, Jesus comes up to be baptized, and Mark's account of this is the shortest it is, it is, Mark is, I mean, he's directing to the point on most things. Uh, but the others all have some interaction going on between John and Jesus, but they also tell us of this other interaction, right? And that's what Mark focuses on. After Jesus is baptized, Mark says, the heavens are torn open. That's a unique word that Mark uses, torn open. The Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and then a voice calls out. Okay, what's going on? Well, let me explain this briefly. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, right? So between the the story of his birth and this event, we've got roughly 30 years, right? There's a lot of time in there. We're only told of like a couple of things that happened in there. So there's not much we know. And so this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And scholars will tell you that what's happening here is Jesus is being set apart. Set apart as God's king. And there's a ton of Old Testament images that are being played out here, which we'll get to, like king stuff and true Israel stuff and all that. But what's important for us to, is right now is the fact that right here we have the Father speaking, the Son receiving, and the Spirit descending. All three persons of this thing we call the Trinity, this person we call the Trinity, the Godhead, 
are all at work at one moment. So let's focus on that voice in verse 11. A voice comes from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now, that is scriptural language, which is to say it is, um, this, if you're a Jewish person and you were listening to this, you would have recognized that. And that, that makes sense, right? I mean, if, if God is an author of scripture, we should expect that it's kind of the language he likes to use, right? And so he's using that same language. So that first phrase, you are my son, that comes from Psalm uh, 2. The delight part, that comes from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. Like there's all of these things being brought together. Now, some have said that this is solely about like Jesus' role, that son here is only a title, right? That, that, that means king, Messiah, that's the way you would speak about Davidic kings, and that is true. All of that is true, but not comprehensive about what's going on. So stay with me for a minute, because there's some complexity here. So if you're like a Bible nerd, I want you to check in right now, because this is, you're going to love this, all right? <laughs> Unless you really hate grammar, in which case, just, just pause a second, I'll tell you when to come back, all right? Grammatically, what's going on in these two things is important. The first is that that phrase sonship, this is my son, in, in the form in the original, and the Bible is written in Greek, not the King's English, sorry, sorry any King James people, sorry, uh, it wasn't written in English originally, it's written in Greek, and so um, it, that word, that way that that phrase is, is working is it points to it being continual. In other words, not something that just begun. It's not God saying, this one has become my son and with him I am well pleased. It is, this one has always been my son. The last part, when he says delight, in whom I delight, or with him I am well pleased, that is very difficult to describe in English, uh, but it, it speaks of delight in the past. Okay, so why does that matter? It matters because what we are witnessing is not just how happy God is to have a king he likes, It's not just how happy God is to finally get on with this rescue plan he's been working up. This is a witness to the kind of relationship God the Father has with God the Son. The word beloved is important because it is not part of Psalm 2. It's not just this is my son, it's this is my beloved son. Some of your translations might say my one and only son. You can say that as well. Because it means both the one I love and the one that is unique. And what God is saying here, as Jesus is being baptized, is that this is the Son. This is my Son, and I love Him. I love Him. I delight in Him. Right? And this is part of what I was talking about a second ago. The Bible teaches that that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed from eternity past in this constant relationship of love. Mutually loving and delighting in one another for eternity. Can you imagine that? Loving perfectly and being loved perfectly in return. Being delighted in and delighting in another person perfectly. Never stopping, never getting grumpy, never having that sense of, but could you change in this way? None of it forever. Forever. Being enjoyed for exactly who you are. Okay, Rick, why do you make such a big deal about that? Because it makes a lot of difference in what we're about to talk about. So if you've got your Bible, flip over to the end of Mark. Because Jesus' story doesn't stay that way. 
In Mark 15, Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's been tried both by Jewish authorities. Sorry, Stephen, I'll let you put that back up later. By um, Jewish authorities and by Roman ones, right? Um, the Romans couldn't find any guilt in him, but frankly, Romans never needed an excuse to kill a random Jew. And so they did. Um, uh, Romans never needed an excuse to kill a random anyone. They, they were very, very good at it. And we're told here that from the sixth till the ninth hour, so three hours of the day, darkness came over the earth, and then Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, have you ever wondered why these guys who were writing the rest of their letter in Greek decided right in the middle of it to put some Aramaic in? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe you didn't even know it was Aramaic. That's what that is. Why? I mean, it seems weird, right? Because then he goes on to translate. It's like, I mean, you could have skipped a sentence, you know, and just gone with the translation. Well, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine... I want you to imagine the craziest family holiday you've ever had. And I, I know some of y'all had some crazy ones, right? Some of y'all have some good ones. One that someone said something just outrageous. And there's something about those kind of memories that imprint themselves on us. And so now I want you to imagine you're a disciple of Jesus. As a matter of fact, you have heard this voice before. You've heard the voice that said, my God, my God, or not my God. You've heard the voice that said, this is my son. You've heard that voice. You were there. You were there for the transfiguration. You heard it. You've known that Jesus had this relationship with the Father that was tight, and he talked about it, and it was awesome. And then on the cross, you heard Jesus almost in, a, in not only just hanging there and dying, but in a tortured form because here was the one who had enjoyed that relationship forever. And now it's gone. What do you think he would have sounded like? My family is about to travel 11 hours tomorrow. Praise God. I had that thought this morning. Like, what if they don't make it? I wonder what my cry would sound like. And I don't have perfect love for my family. And they don't have perfect love for me. I'm a jerk. What would that have sounded like? It would have imprinted itself on your brain so much that when you talked about it, you had to put it in the words that you heard it. Right? And that's what's going on here. Suddenly, where there was warmth, there is a void. Where there's a smile, now Jesus cannot see their face. And it is a terrifying thought. And this was the, the experience, not just of the Son, but of the Father and the Spirit as well. All of a sudden, where there was joy and love and bliss, now there's wrath and betrayal. And now, some of us may be thinking, like, why are we talking about this? I mean, shouldn't we be talking about the cradle and not the cross? I mean, it is almost Christmas. It is. But you can't have the cradle without the cross. You can't, because Jesus' mission, the reason why he was in the cradle, is right here. His mission was to leave that fullness of love for the terror of a forsakenness. Well, why? I mean, why do you do that? 
Well, it's not simply evidence of how cruel we can be to one another. The cross is about you and me. And to understand why we did this, we need to understand ourselves a little better. So let's, let's look at the for, of forsakenness and love, okay? See, the same scriptures that speak of God's relationship of mutual love and eternity past, they talk about him creating. We, we kind of got to some of that this morning. And that you and I, like humanity, was created to share in that relationship, to share in that love, to be a part of it, to be welcomed into that kind of loveliness and that kind of joy. And so because God was exists in a community of love. We who were made in his image were also made for love. We were made to be in a dependent, loving relationship with God. But we turned from him and betrayed him. And that's what we heard first thing this morning, right? From Genesis 3. We believed a lie. We believed that God was not for us. Right? That, that he was out to get us. That he was there holding us back. That, that in fact, what he told us was not true. We couldn't trust it And he was doing that because he was trying to withhold something from us. And so because of that, we turned from him and betrayed him. And that is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is not simply a breaking of rules. If we stick on that, we miss the whole point. Sin is breaking a relationship. It's not about a code. It's about a person. It's not an issue of behavior primarily. Primarily, it's an issue of the heart. Because the Bible says you can be very, very moral and very, very distant from God. Some of you this morning, you're not not Christians here in this place, and I guarantee you're a great person. And part of the reason why Christianity makes no sense to many of us is because we end up thinking like, I don't need Jesus to be good. I'm pretty good. If your problem was being good, then you're right. But our problem's not being good. It's being independent. You can be very good and very independent from God because we're still seeking life apart from him. And when we did this, our position shifted with God. Paul says, uh, early Christian leader named Paul says in one of his writings in the book of Colossians, he says in verse 1, 21, that because of our sin, we are alienated from God and his enemies. And now when we hear this, some of us get skeptical of that because we think God's getting too uppity, right? Like what, why is he so upset? But here, Paul didn't say that God got mad and cast us away and made us his his enemies. He says that we were alienated from him and enemies, literally in our minds. In other words, we pulled away from him. We hated him. It's not that God was like, you know... What happened in the garden was not like breaking curfew, right? It's not like breaking curfew, where all of a sudden we break curfew, we come home about 10 minutes late, and our parents are like, I can't believe you disrespected me, blah, blah, blah. And they're mad at us. It is us going, you are not for me. And all of a sudden, he turns from beloved father to enemy to us. See, we're not neutral. We're not in a neutral place and God's just kind of like waiting to squish us. But left to ourselves, we want nothing to do with him. Left to ourselves, we hate him. Our sin had alienated us from God, from the relationship we were made for. And friends, this is why you and I often struggle with feelings of this innate sense of alienation. What do I mean by that? It's Christmas time where you're at a Christmas party and you're with all your friends and you feel alone. 
where you waited all those years to finally find the one. You're laying in bed with that person and you feel lonely. Right? See, the, the writer of this Old Testament book named Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And what that means is that we were made for an eternal person. And because it's an eternal relationship that we're hungering for, the ones here can't satisfy us. They're good. Don't get me wrong. They're all good. But they can't satisfy us. Our problem is relational. Right? The prophet Isaiah says that our sin has separated us from God. We are, our problem is that we need to be restored to him. Okay, so now let's bring this together. Why did Jesus come if only to be forsaken uh, by God? Well, because God was looking for restoration with us, with you, with me. 1 John 3.1. Okay, and, and if you're new to the Bible, when we say 3.1, what we mean is chapter 3, verse 1. At some point, not when the, the dudes first wrote it, but later, some guys got together and you know, you know what would be better if we had these numbers associated with this stuff so we could find stuff easier? Because when they wrote it in Greek, they didn't know what a finger space was. It was just all together, right? Any of you who are in education, you know what a finger space is, okay? They didn't, okay? So, 1 John 3.1 says, Look at how great a love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And then in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, he says that to those who received him, that is Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. But how? How do aliens and enemies become children? How do aliens and enemies become sons and daughters? That is why Jesus was forsaken. God declared right there in the garden, we, we kind of glossed over that point because we were trying to get up the idea of exile, but right in between those two sections that were read this morning, God declared that in, in this mystery, he would make things right between us. God becomes human to make things right, to heal our alienation, to deal with our status of, as enemy, and he does it by taking our place. Jesus was beloved delighted in, not just at his baptism, but for all of eternity and for every moment of his earthly life. He led the life of vibrant relationship with God that you and I were made for and we couldn't do if our lives depended on it. We can't. But then he died the death that we deserve and that is what the cross is about. Christmas without the cross makes everything about Jesus simply a weird tragedy. But Christmas with the cross makes this birth that much more amazing. The incarnation that much more stunning. That you could hold God in your hands. And that as you're holding him, what you would know is that he did that because he intended to defeat sin, death, and hell by bearing it all. On the cross, Jesus took the place of God's enemies. He was alienated in our place. Why have you forsaken me? See, our sin earned us only judgment, but Jesus, because he loved us, took that judgment for us. So why was he forsaken? For me, for you, because I, was, I love looking more spiritual than being spiritual. Because I don't want to be inconvenienced by people. Because I'm quick to turn from God to my distraction of the month to ease my feelings of inadequacy. But because he was forsaken, I can be called a child of God. Friends, this is why Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is called good news. It's why we use the word gospel. 
right? It's good news because God didn't give us a behavior code of how to get back to him, how to make things right with him. He made things right. He bore the judgment we reduced so that if we simply receive that gift in Jesus, we can enter that relationship we were made for. Enemies can be called children of God by faith. It's amazing. All right. Now I want to bring this home really quick in a couple of ways. First, let's talk about the freight of love. You and I were made for love, and we know this. Lord, we know this. It's why we, we hunger for it so much. Because the Bible tells us that we were made for a love that's eternal. And, and that is why, friends, no matter how much love you seem to get, it never seems like it's enough. Right? It's never enough. You know, some of us are so starved for it that we'll do anything we can to get the approval of somebody else. And then we'll do any, once we've got it, we'll do anything we can, anything we can to keep it. Because what we're wanting is we want the love of others to tell us something about ourselves, to tell us that we matter, to tell us that we're special, to ease that feeling of something is wrong with us, right? Because we look around and we go, everyone else seems really loved. They seem to be full of love. What's wrong with me that I'm not? Well, something must be, therefore I must make it right. And there is something wrong with you. There is something wrong with me. But their love can't do it. See, the love of others was never meant to carry that freight. And the idea of delight, delight is the same, right? For most of us, when we think about someone delighting in us, it's just this Pollyannish version of like, that sounds nice, but I don't even know what that is. It's so foreign that, that though we may think about delight, what we'll settle for is desire. In other words, I'm not really sure if I can be delighted in, but I can get someone to desire me. And maybe that's sexually, maybe that's, but, but maybe it's just desire to be used by them in some way. I can make myself really useful. And if I make myself really useful, people will want to be with me because I can do stuff for them. Sound familiar? Anyone else in the helping fields? Right? That's a lot of why we do this, if we're being honest. It's a joke. God is so funny that he puts us in this position. We will settle for being desired, possessed, and used instead of being known. And so this morning, if you were looking for love to make you right, can I suggest that so long as you are looking for love to do this, you will never be free to actually give and receive love. Because you will be too terrified to lose it. the love of others is what is going to make you right, then you will do anything to get it and anything to keep it. It becomes a commodity to be chased. It becomes a God to be worshipped. You will begin to look at people, not in terms of how you can love them, but how they can love you. What do I need to do? How do I need to manipulate? How do I need to kind of get in right with them? How do I perform? How do I present the right thing? How do I hide the wrong thing so that they will love me and I can get what I need? And you will be terrified of them learning something about you that will make them abandon you. But if you believe that you have been freely given the status of beloved by the one 
who knew you already completely. Like he knows stuff about you you don't even know. You think it's bad. (laughs) Cheer up. It is way worse than you think. And he knows. And he died to secure you in that status of beloved. If you believe that this status, this like I am loved, I am beloved of God, that that's been offered to you, not based on anything you've done, which means if you didn't do anything to get it, you can't do anything to lose it, right? It can't be taken from you. Then you will actually be free to love others and receive their love freely because their love or the removal of it cannot affect that status. The thing you hunger for has been given to you and there's nothing else that anyone else's love can give you. Is it nice? Yes. Were we made for it? Yes. Will we be destroyed without it? Not with Jesus. Not with Jesus. By faith in him, you can actually be freed from your feverish search for acceptance because the one you truly long for accepts you fully in Jesus. And that brings us to, to the response, right? The response of love. Because this is an amazing thing. But let me, let me suggest that it's probable that within this room there's three possible uh, ways in which we're thinking right now. There's probably more than that, but I like to simplify things, okay? General, uh, generalizations. The first is simply this. No way. Right? Our first response is, I can't believe that. And for many... This is just either too good to be true or too foolish to be true. And I agree. It is. It does seem like way too good. And it does seem foolish. And so if you can't bring yourself to believe that this is true today, listen, I totally get it. We have been conditioned both through culture and through our own life and our own experience to look for the catch. No such thing as a free lunch, right? Someone comes and they're kind to us. First thing we think, what do they want? Right? Uh, Maybe I'm the only one. I get it. It's hard to believe, but can I suggest that if you don't believe this is true today, you should really want it to be. What would it be like to lay down your shield? That shield you keep up all the time? Keep people at bay? Watching for the other shoe to drop? keeping that cynical eye on what's coming next, kind of doing this all the time, right? Because you're never really sure. What if you could just put the shield down and not be afraid? Wouldn't you want it? Wouldn't you want that to be true? If this is true, then the God who made you and who has been offended by you still wants to be with you and has done everything necessary for that to happen. He's not asking for penance or retribution. He's only asking for you. The second, the second possible response, which I think is probably the majority opinion in this room, is that I agree with that in principle. See, Like for most of us, we can believe it intellectually, but we can't fully accept it. In other words, it's in our heads. We know it's the right answer. You know, if anyone asks us, like, did you do anything to get God to love you? No. Did you do anything? No. Like, Jesus died for me because he loves me. Like, we get that. But do you live like it? Like, 
the distance between here and here, a little bit further than that 12 inches or 16 or whatever it is, right? I, I, I believe this in principle, and I, I think this is most of us, because some of us refuse to accept God's love in Jesus, because what we want to do first is make ourselves lovely. If God's going to love me, it's because I've made myself lovely, right? I've done something to pretty myself up. And, and I know some of you are arguing with me right now. And so don't think about, like, just you come in and you're having a good day and you're thinking, like, I got to, yeah, I'm having a good day and so God will love me. Think, don't think about it like that. Think about the way you feel when you blow it. How do, you, how do you approach God after you blow it? And you know what I mean. I mean, it's different for everybody in how you blow it, but you know what you do is you go, give me a minute. Let me um, clean myself up a little bit before I get there. Right? You got the right answer, but you don't really believe it. And you're not alone. <laughs> you're not alone. Lord, you're not alone. You see, friends, you You can't make yourselves lovely. What makes you lovely is that God has loved you. That means you have to let go of control. When we're struggling and we say to our friends, I know God loves me, but I can't love me. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive me. What we really mean is, I know your God forgives me, but mine won't. I know your God loves me, but mine won't. To actually receive the love of God by faith in Jesus means you have to give up control and let the status that he gives you say the most about you, to define you, no matter what you did last night. And some of you are thinking, Rick, you don't know what I did last night. You know what? You don't know what I did last night. You don't. But I know what Jesus did. And you cannot outsin his cross. You think you were clean when you first believed. You think you were clean when you're doing things well. You're not. The only thing that makes you lovely is the love of God. It's just like, you... so I blow it. I know. And he loves you. He's dealt with it. He took care of it. He's not wanting you to go clean yourself. He just wants you back. Come to me. You're still my child. Did you think you were better before? You are not broken beyond repair. You cannot outsin the cross of Christ and you cannot outperform his life. By faith, you're a child of God. The third response is simply that of I have no other hope. See, the amazing thing about being freely loved is when you know you are delighted in, without reference to what you do, you tend to do everything you can to grow closer and to please that person. That's that weird thing that happens when we talk about, like, Presbyterians, Reformed people who are like, faith and works, faith and works, faith and works. If it's relational, we're not talking about a status, like a, like a, like a code and boxes that get checked and bags being handed off, I hand Jesus my sin, he hands me. But if it's, if it's union and relationship, then when you've been delighted in and loved, you say, God, I just want to, I've already got his pleasure, boy, do I want to seek it. 
I'm already fully pleasing to him? Boy, do I want to try and be pleasing to him. Not because I'm afraid of something happening. Purely because he has loved me at my lowest. Lower than I even know. You can love with reckless abandon because you know that you who were once forsaken are now embraced because the one who was loved was forsaken for you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, may we never, ever grow so used to that that it does not fill our hearts with amazement. If some of my friends here in this place are here and they, you know, they came in, they came into this place maybe to make up for what the last few days have been like. I pray that you would let their minds be filled with the truth that the mercies of God are new every morning and that great is your faithfulness because ours is not. That that status has not changed that you have taken their sin far more seriously than they have so that now you can delight in them freely and fully because Jesus has paid it all. Let our our movement into Christmas, our movement into the celebration of the incarnation of of God being born in flesh, of of being able to, that Mary could hold her creator in her hands, that the amazement of that would never fade on us and wouldn't fade in the next few days because of, the, of what, why you did that. To make us sons and daughters of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.